brand new sound for your Sunday morning. Introducing the Reverend A.R. Bernard of the Christian Cultural Center. Was the son of a preacher man. And Rabbi Joseph Fantasnik of Religion on the Line. The only one who could ever teach me. Now, now on 77 WABC, the Rev and the Rabbi, where faith matters. Good morning, I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend Bernard, this uh, weekend, we speak of it as a, a holiday weekend, but I like to speak of it also as a, as a holy weekend, because to me, Memorial Day it was my father's birthday, and uh, he came to this country, and he treated Memorial Day religiously. We'd go to the cemetery, we would spend some time in front of graves of soldiers, and I remember saying to him as a young kid, Dad, you, you didn't know them. He said, no, I didn't, but they knew about us. Um, and so I, I have to take a moment to say it's a time to relax, but it's a time to reflect as to those who uh, gave their lives to save our lives so that we would live in a, you know, in a, in a better place. And uh, I just think given what's going on today, um, this is not the proudest moment uh, for democracy when we see the increase in hatred. Uh, I see it against Jews. I see it against Asians. I see it against Christians. I've seen churches that have been desecrated. Yeah, uh, there's too right. much hatred Catholic in churches. our land and around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and being bad. And, and, and look, I, I would think that the word memorial is special to you because it means to preserve remembrance. It means to remember, and that is such an important word for the Jewish people. Yeah, uh, the word zachor, and I, you know, I, I've said before. And I, and I really borrow this from the rabbi at Temple, Temple Tree of Life in Pittsburgh, where there was that horrendous shooting. He asked about mm-hmm. the words never again. He said, when we proclaimed them years ago, I think we put an exclamation mark there, not a question mark. And mm-hmm. when we see all of the tragedies, people attacking, attacking, not because of anything you did, because of who you are, when a person is afraid to walk out wearing a yarmulke, when uh, you have a crucifix on the lawn of a church and is desecrated, a mosque was desecrated in Brooklyn, you, you know, never again seems to have the question mark rather than the exclamation mark. And this is not what we should be as a people. It's not what people yeah. fought and gave their lives for so that we would, you know, uh, be hurting one another. Absolutely. And we've got some guests today that we're going to talk about some of these issues. And, you know, I, I, I think about the PR problem that uh, Israel has, that the Jewish people have, um, when it comes to even thinking about doing, let's say, a, a public service announcement. You know what I mean? You do a PSA, get it on the networks to explain the, the complexity and how layered the issues in the Middle East are with the Palestinians and uh, the Israeli government. But even if you were to do that as Jewish people, there is a perception that the Jews control the media, and all of all of that would turn out to be or be interpreted as is the Jewish and the Jews in control of the media. I'm trying to put out their message to cover what's really going on. How do you deal with that? Well, when, I, when, I, when, I said last you know, week. I said last week, Reverend. If anybody claims the Jews control the media, the reports of the last week or two. Uh, certainly during the 11 days of conflict when Israel was subjected to over 4,000 missiles, and you read those newspaper accounts, we don't control the media. Uh, 
if we did, I think we'd tell a, a more honest story. Uh, but but you're right. I mean, we, people very often treat life in a very simplistic fashion. They see Israel as a sovereign state. It's strong. It's armed. And they see these poor, you know, people in Gaza who have been... As the victims. As yeah. the victims, yeah. right? And the yeah. fact that they're throwing 4,000 missiles and, and you're not expected to respond in, you know, in any kind of retaliatory measure, uh, that's become the new narrative. And but I wonder what would happen, what would that narrative look like if there was not the protective dome system yeah. and those those missiles were, were penetrating yeah. and killing killing Jews. I don't think we have... Uh, do, we, do we have to have, you know, 4,000 Jews killed yeah. in order to say, oh... You know, now we're balancing the equation. Well, we did, are we at that place of madness? I don't think we came into this world as Jews to commit suicide, so that Palestinians or others would celebrate. And again, uh, you and I listened to the Consul General in a conversation this week. There is a willingness to come to a table on the Israeli side to sit and to find a solution with Palestinians. Hamas is not seeking solution, seeking death of the Jews. And you yeah. can't negotiate with murderers that way. So, um, There's a wonderful passage in the Psalms that says you cannot make peace with someone who has war in their heart. Yeah, well, and in their hands. It goes beyond the heart. <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah. we have two special people on today. One is Bishop Victor Brown. Uh, mm -hmm. who we come to know, uh, police chaplain, is also with the Worldwide Fellowship of Independent Christian Churches, and Alicia Wiesel. Uh, the name Wiesel automatically, you know, uh, tells people that uh, he is the beneficiary of a great, great family legacy. He's the son of uh, late Ellie Wiesel and also the son of Marion Wiesel. And look at, look at the contributions they've made to the betterment of the world. And uh, I think Ellie Wiesel is looking down and saying, you could do a much better job in this world uh, of preserving that legacy. So I look forward to that conversation. Yeah, stay tuned. There'll be more with the Rev and the Rabbi right here on 77 WABC. Where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi, 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potaster. And I am Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend, we are privileged to have two people as guests today. One is uh, an individual who's become one of our best friends. The other is one who soon will be one of our best friends. I refer to Bishop Victor Brown, Worldwide Fellowship of Independent Christian Churches, and Alicia Wiesel. The name Wiesel is obviously well known to many people. He is the son uh, of the late... Ellie Wiesel, son of Marion Wiesel, uh, and he is, to me, a very proud Jew, one who's not afraid to voice uh, his opinions about what's going on in the world and uh, also what's going on within the Jewish community. So welcome to both of you. Thank you so much Thank for you. the invite. i got to tell you, Rev, when you call Alicia's phone, he has an interesting message. It says, if this is my mother, please leave a message. If it's not my mother... You can text me, and I just think that's a that's a great way uh, to offer a special place for, for your mother, Alicia. Uh, I've come to know you uh, during the last few years, and obviously a great admirer of your father and your mother. And one of the things I learned from your father and Bishop Brown, you've acknowledged this as well, is there is a commandment we cannot take for granted, which is thou shalt not be a bystander. And I, I That's right. right. I think one of the problems in the world is that there are too many people who close their their eyes and ears 
when they witness injustices perpetrated against the people. Uh, your thoughts? Boy, you don't start off with small talk, do you, on this program? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listen, we have we have seen, I think, over the past few years, movements come together with great rapidity and with great urgency to address wrongs that have happened. And I think that that is, in many ways, a good thing. I think that there is also a flip side to it, which is particularly with social media, that as we get together and we stop being bystanders, we often get very combative and find ourselves arguing with less and less information and more and more hearsay. You know, Mm -hmm. it's funny, Rabbi Potasnik, my father is well known for certain quotes about how, uh, you know, the, the indifference is worse than hatred, how silence is the enemy. But if you take a look at what's happened to us, particularly over the last four years, do you see anybody really being silent anymore, or do you see us all yelling at each other, backing into our own corners, listening either for confirmatory information from people we agree with or things to scorn from people we disagree with? So I think mm-hmm. my father's legacy is at a very interesting turning point because we're all activated now. We're all activists. We don't necessarily all have information, and we don't necessarily all have the ability to give each other the benefit of the doubt. Interesting. Bishop? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I would I would concur with that. Uh, as, as he was speaking, I was thinking about uh, a quote from Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, who stated that our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. And I, w- I would agree that uh, what we have uh, uh, between us and amongst us in this day and time is much that's being said, but people are talking at each other and not to each other. And I think that is unfortunate because it undermines the reality that we can disagree without becoming disagreeable. What is unfortunate, however, is that we have persons in key leadership, uh, both in Washington and, and on local levels, that are not serving as good examples for the rest of us. And uh, that is a sad commentary. Tribalism seems to be the order of the day. And unless a person agrees with another person, then there's no room for dialogue. And I, and I think that's really tragic. Reverend? You know, Bishop, I, I, I think about the facts. And the facts are, and these are hard facts for our community as African Americans. I'm Afro-Latino. Mm-hmm. And both African-American and Latino have been too often the perpetrators of bias crimes against the Jewish community. That Um, is correct. Bishop, starting with you, I mean, how do we respond to that as persons of color, leaders of color? Well, I think the first place we we start is uh, we confront it. You know, conflict avoided is not conflict resolved. And I think there are not enough African-American leaders in our community who are calling it for what it is and who are speaking out against it. My constant frustration is that uh, when there are crimes perpetrated against African-Americans by persons who do not look look like us, it seems that it is easy to mobilize and galvanize big marches. But when it is uh, crime toward each other, it seems like that does not happen. 
And I think we really need to uh, confront the ills that are are within our own community. And um, the extent to which we do not speak out and call it for what it is, then in in a sense, then we're aiding and abetting that level of irresponsibility. Now, now, Bishop, you know, if we use the language black on black crime, uh, you and I would be persecuted by our own community for blaming the victims. Uh, uh, Again, I think that all that is necessary for the forces of evil to win out is for enough good people to do nothing. And uh, having a prophetic voice often puts us uh, in a place uh, uh, of unpopularity. And I think all of us as leaders, particularly in the African-American community, have, have a choice to make. We have to decide whether or not our ambition and our raison d'etre is to be popular and to seek popularity, or is it to be prophetic? And I think, unfortunately, uh, many of the voices that are out there are not prophetic. And so it exacerbates the problem. So, Alicia, talk about that, because your dad uh, obviously blessed us with a prophetic voice. He was not afraid he was to, not to speak. I'm sorry, Rob. There was there was noise. I couldn't hear the question. I said your father was blessed with a uh, prophetic yep. voice. He was not afraid. He was an iconoclast. Uh, he was he was absolutely not afraid to speak. And I think that that's the big problem right now. Frankly, within the Jewish community, I feel like our leadership at the moment is so afraid that they have lost members of the community, and members of the community have been lost from everything to simply lack of interest. They're no longer interested in being associated with a faith. They're no longer interested in Jewish ritual or the Hebrew language or studying our sacred text. So there's there's the whole pull of assimilation. But we've also lost them with regards to Israel being one of the cornerstones of what forms support in our Jewish community. This belief that half of our number, that 7 million of the 14 million surviving Jews today live in the land of Israel and have chosen to self-determine and form a state and govern themselves and it used to be a bedrock of the Jewish community that there was support from American Jewry to that project and that too has been shaken um, for a variety of reasons from a perception that Israel has lost uh, a moral high ground despite the fact that it is the one that has offered peace so many times there is a perception that because Trump clearly loved Israel how could you ever support something that Trump loved for liberal Jews Therefore, they are going to be against it. So there are many reasons why it's happened, but I'd say the Jewish community is in real crisis right now. Mm-hmm. And our leaders, rather than being prophetic iconoclasts and saying, guys, let's get back with the program, remind ourselves of our values, how they can come together, I think that we're right now in a position of fear. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the question becomes, we can look back and lament uh, things that we did wrong. Uh, you know, we lost... We lost some of our own, our own kids. Uh, what do we do now? How do we regain that uh, that place where uh, we really come more together uh, to combat the, the anti-Semitism that exists, that, that is rising, by the way? I, I heard a statistic today, for example, in France, Jews make up 1% of the population. 40% of the hate crimes are against Jews. What do we do? 
boy. Um, by the way, I'm quickly coming to love this program because it's clear you get right to the heart of matters, and it's also clear to me that you don't shy away from controversy. So <laughs> fit right in. Yeah. So you've really, you've well, really made me that, feel at home. That's the tradition of your father. He uh, he bequeathed us with a legacy. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about three different things that we could do, and I would love to hear from you, gentlemen, what you think about them. Uh, the number mm-hmm. one thing I'm gonna say is that there is sometimes a role for anger, for righteous anger. And mm-hmm. I was on a call this morning, and we had a we had a, a some a caller on a different program who asked, um, "Hey, you know, what about proportionality? I think about Israel, and I think about the fact that." You know, Israel had much fewer people die as a result of Hamas rockets than Gazans dying from Israeli rockets. And I thought about it, and I was like, you know what? There is no way to rationally explain to this person that the concept of proportionality here is idiotic, because if he wants an even body count, the only way to get to an even body count is for Israel to stop using Iron Dome and shooting missiles out of the sky. And frankly, that's just stupid. And I actually felt myself get angry, and I thought about pulling back on it, and I said, you know what? Sometimes anger is an appropriate response. If somebody says something stupid and racist that is a dangerous thought, there really is nothing wrong with getting angry and letting them see a little bit of indignation. I think that um, we have not, as a people, the American Jewish population, shown anger when it's appropriately deserved. And I think sometimes it's appropriate. On the other side, I want to tell you a story about um, two friends of mine that I, that I met as a result of learning about them. This is the story of Derek Black, who was the son of Don Black, the guy who ran Stormfront, basically like the BBC radio, you know, for the KKK down in the South. He went to college. He was trying to take steps so nobody would know who he was because he was a very active right-wing extremist. And when he was outed, nobody wanted to talk to the guy. This one young man, though, named Matthew Stevenson, said, you know what, nobody else is talking to him. I'm going to invite him to a Shabbat dinner. And he ended up going to Shabbat dinner at this Orthodox Jews dorm week after week after week. And about a year later, he issued a very compelling statement, giving up on everything he had done before, condemning his father for his life's work, and saying, hatred is not the way I now see clearly. So there is something to be said also for engaging with love with people that we disagree with, because you never know where that might take you. Mm-hmm. I think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about love, and love is about action, not just a feeling. It's demonstration uh, of care and concern and, and involvement. You know, Rabbi, you and I were talking this past week about our young people mm-hmm. and the problem mm-hmm. that 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 you know you're having in the Jewish community, and and I'm sure Bishop, you can say within our community of color and our. Christian community, and that is young people uh, shying away from religious identity and those traditions that are so important to who we are as as a people and and, uh, informing us and shaping us in terms of the value of human life. Um, Mm -hmm. Rabbi, you know, remember we were talking about that. Yeah, look, I, I think one of the mistakes we make, and please feel free to, you know, inject your thoughts here. I think we're too yeah. quick to write off people. Uh, and, you know, we're, we as Jews are one-tenth of one percent of the world's population. We can't afford to lose people. We can't afford to write off people. And I think there are those who just are, are so ready to discard. 
uh, and to say, well, they don't count anymore. They're not. They're not with us anymore. And uh, Alicia, as you just told the story, I thought to myself, we got to keep trying to engage and find common ground where we can, and even when we don't have common ground, continue to engage. Uh, because sometimes from that initial contact, uh, you give a person a chance to express grievances, all of a sudden you find, you know what, you listen to me. You heard what I have to say. I mattered. And then you can engage the person in deeper conversation. I think, though, that part of, part of the problem, even as it relates to relationship formation, uh, cross-cultural, cross-relational, is that there has been in recent days such an assault on truth and what is truth, who defines truth. Uh, during the Trump administration, we know that the, the term that was popularized by uh, Conway was alternative facts. And so uh, because truth has been, in my assessment, so, so assaulted, um, people are having a great di- uh, degree of, of difficulty uh, forming meaningful relationships. You know, we we become so so isolated. I had a conversation with my college person yesterday, and I and I said to her, I said, you know, when I when I wore a, a much younger man's clothes, I had aspirations of going into journalism, and one of the first lessons I learned was that uh, we're supposed to only report the facts and leave it up to the listeners to derive their own or come to their own conclusion about it. And so whether we 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 listen to CNN, MSNBC, or, or Fox. They call themselves news outlets, but they're really not news outlets. They're, they're what I call news commentary or, or news yeah, news commentary outlets. They're giving their perspective uh, of the news. And so, to be honest with you, I think something should take place that even changes uh, the name. I challenged her to maybe sponsor a, a, a bill. I'm sure it would be challenged on, you know, constitutionality, but I think a bill should be advanced uh, that seeks to change their name from news to news commentary. Because that that really is what it is. So so that at least when people are listening to it, they know that they're not listening to news, but they're listening yeah. to this perfect perspective of, of what the facts are. Renee Arbenard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, the Rev and the Rabbi, where faith matters. Seventy seven WABC and WABCRadio.com. You know, I, I'm just thinking about all of this. There's some data that has come out that says that, you know, fewer than 50% of Americans are holding formal memberships when it comes to churches and synagogues. And the whole formality of relationship with the religious tradition that brings a moral value consensus is, is now challenging us as a society because mm-hmm. now, as Bishop uh, Brown said earlier, you know, there is no objective truth. There's no transcendent right. truth. And yeah. we all come up with our own truth. It, it, it becomes, uh, you know, relativism and, 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 and steeped in naturalism, which, which eliminates God and er, eliminates a, a transcendent moral consensus. You know, uh, we've got our hands full now with this shift yes. in society. Right, and I think that is is one of the primary reasons why uh, people, uh, particularly youth, are moving away from from structured religion because of the fact that truth is under such attack. And uh, I'm reminded that Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, "We're entitled to our own opinions, but we're not entitled to our own facts." Yeah, 
Alicia, uh, and, and again, uh, Victor, you can feel free as well. Let's talk about Israel for a moment. To me, Israel has a great moral story to tell. And yet, if you look at recent news accounts, you see a totally different depiction. Israel is the aggressor. Uh, people in Gaza are, are the victims. Uh, lack of proportionality. You know, you've heard all the arguments. Alicia, what's the response? I mean, you've been to some rallies. You've spoken with some Jewish leaders. And we're losing, we're losing certainly the, the battle on social media. Listen, I think that there are a number of big lies about Israel, and I'm going to go through three of them in quick succession, and I'm going to tell you what I believe to be the truth about Israel that the facts on record would support. First lie is this concept that, um, that has really spread in the United States, I think, and is at the heart, unfortunately, of so much of the hatred and scorn that Jews and the Israelis currently receive from progressives. And that is this concept through intersectionality that Jews are white and Palestinians are black. I think that that is a big lie that has been spread, that has colored the racial justice movement. And if you think about it, Jews were among the earliest supporters of the racial justice movement, and yet somehow we've become the enemies because those who hate the state of Israel has, have very much promoted that lie. So I think that that is absolutely lie number one um, that I have sort of square in my sights. And if you think about it, you look at Israel's history. Israel, first of all, has not only sought peace with its neighbors since before it was created in 1947. Israel has created a world in which LGBTQ Arabs have to flee their surrounding countries in order to follow their heart as well as follow their faith. Israel is the only country in recorded history to have done a massive airlift of Ethiopian Jews to rescue them away from government suppression and poverty and put them into the modern life and give them a new hope. Israel is the one that has not only sought peace repeatedly, it has given land for peace. And the big lie is that Israel occupies Gaza, but Israel does not occupy Gaza. Israel voluntarily retreated from Gaza in 2006, despite many concerns from the security establishment. And Israel said, we're going to give it to the Palestinian Authority. Let's see what happens when we pull back. Are we, you know, what state are we going to get on our border? Are we going to get Costa Rica, a tourist state that is built up and pleasant that we can have great relationships with? But that is, of course, not what they got. They got a state that fires rockets at them, that elected Hamas, that is committed to the destruction of Israel and Jews everywhere. So those are, I think, some of the big lies, both at home and in Israel, that have colored the international dialogue and perception of Israel. Now, you know, there's the other side of that, uh, 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 Ellie. Um, it's Ellie. You know, when you talk about the Ethiopian Jews, yes, you know, Israel uh, did airlift Ethiopian Jews, bring them in, embrace them, but... It took time for them to be accepted. There were times when, you know, uh, the blood bank situation where Ethiopian Jews would go and give blood and that blood would be tossed out because Israelis did not want to mix their blood with the Ethiopian mm -hmm. Jews. Uh, you have the, the, the question as to whether the removal of Jews from Gaza in 2006 was to protect Jews and isolate the Palestinians to make them more manageable by 
Israel who is being depicted as the aggressor. So, you know, you present these things and then you have the other side and people are looking, people are interpreting the same facts differently. Mm -hmm. And and, and we have these kind of tensions. How do you respond to that? Yeah. Listen, first of all, you know, the, the blood bank thing is despicable, and everyone who cares about justice and uh, the appropriate way to live in Israel was, was horrified and rejected it. You know, my parents, the very first thing that they did when they created the Elie Wiesel Foundation in the late 1980s, after my father won the Nobel Peace Prize, they made it their primary work through that foundation to build something called the Bates Park Project, which was after-school opportunities in Israel to give these new arrivals a chance. And there are many projects like it. Has Israel done it perfectly? Absolutely not. Is Israel trying? Absolutely. In terms of Gaza, what I would say is the withdrawal is much more controversial for the settlers who were there. They did not want to leave. The Jews who were there did not want to be protected. They were perfectly comfortable living in the antagonistic, difficult situation they were. You had headlines of Jewish police and Israeli officers dragging, kicking, and screaming Jewish people out of their homes. These are images that haven't been seen since World War II, so it had a very negative taste. And I think that Ariel Sharon made a very controversial decision. He still gets blamed by many Israeli leaders and thinkers who say he shouldn't have done that, that giving land for peace is a mistake. Yeah, I Nonetheless, also... you say, you look at, look at Egypt, by the way. We're, we're, you know, are we fortunate or not? Al-Sisi, you know, Sisi is there. Right now things are good with Egypt, but, you know, the chance of having another war there at some point in the future because land has been given for peace also exists. Yeah, I also would look at Gaza and say the Israelis didn't write the Hamas charter. I mean, when you have a charter that clearly says we want to eliminate you uh, from the earth, uh, it's pretty hard to have a working relationship with such people. So I, I think Palestinians need to look within. They need to look at their leadership. They look, need to look at why are we in this predicament and look back, as Alicia said before, the, the concessions that were offered throughout the years and rejected by Palestinians. Um, now, that doesn't mean... Well, was it rejected by the Palestinians or was it rejected by Hamas? Because, remember... No, they rejected the Palestinian, Palestinian leadership. Remember, this was Yasser Arafat. Palestinian authority, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they rejected it. There were there was some very generous concessions that were offered. Uh, and we could have been in a much better place if they said, let's find a way to live together. There has to be compromise. We understand that. Uh, but I think when you look at Gaza what was turned over to them and the opportunities that were given to them and yet they chose to uh, you know, align themselves with Hamas whose fault is that? Well that's a question are we talking about we, we often uh, Rabbi you know this uh, uh, Ellie you know this uh, Bishop Brown you know this you know often the voice of the people is not the mind of the people they have all of these other voices, and it seems like the Palestinian Authority at one point and Hamas at another point have been perceived as the mind of the people when that's not really true. I'm curious to know what's happening on the ground and how Palestinians themselves feel about this conflict. You and I, uh, Rabbi, had you know several meetings this past week and talked about this issue, and you know, the Israeli government is seeing it as a conflict not between Israel and Palestinians, but Israel and Hamas. Who right. is being fueled by I Iran? Yeah, but Israel didn't create Hamas. Uh, you know, the people there chose to align themselves with Hamas. Uh, I think one of the things was that Hamas was offering a better social services program, but whatever. But 
you know, I always think the Bible is very clear. You have to make a choice between life and death, and it says choose life. And I don't understand the Palestinian mindset over the years of not choosing life, of, of seeking to go to war, seeking to uh, eliminate, you know, their neighbors. And uh, where does that get them? What's the, you know, what's the result and of that's all my that big problem. Yeah, my big problem is the denial of Israel's right to exist as a nation, as a sovereign state. Uh, that's my big problem, and and of course that's influence, influence and inform my by my Judeo-Christian context. I think Israel has the right to exist. That they are indeed, if you look at the history, indigenous. Whether they were they, whether they were shifted in and out. The reality is that they are indigenous to that land. Yeah. That's that's very real. Bishop, I'm sorry. Uh, jump in on this. Rabbi and I get at it. You know what? I mean, I, I, I'm taking copious notes as I'm listening to, to this, and, and, and I believe that there is, is tremendous veracity to all of the observations that are being being made uh, about the relationship between Palestine and Israel. Uh, but I'm thinking about the issues that are closer to home that are common to to all of us because it is not just the the Jews that have been under assault, the Asian community, Muslims, African Americans, and it all comes from the same place. It comes from ignorance, it comes from intolerance, and it comes from, in my assessment, uh, the fact that we have persons in in leadership who do not embody the virtues that will seek to promote the unity and exalt the commonality that exists between all of us. And yeah. it goes back to, for me, the whole issue of truth and power. And one of, one of I mean, I've always loved uh, my, my, my brother and mentor, Dr. A.R. Bernard, but I had and have the highest degree of respect for him when he made the decision subsequent to Charlottesville to leave the uh, the council, the religious council of the Trump administration, and he did so in in opposition to the stance that was uh, being taken, and the fact that there was not enough that was being said about the blatant racism that was being put on display, and just how the president responded to it. And what I was very very surprised about was that more of them did not follow suit. So I think we need to challenge those persons who are in high places, but we also need to look inward and challenge those people who wear religious God and and to remind them that the God we serve is is not just the God of justice, but he's also a a God of of love and that we're supposed to embody that. And and where that is absent, we have a, a, a moral duty and obligation and a responsibility to speak out against systemic racism, institutional and structured evil, and to the extent that we we do not do that, then we are we are complicit and just as guilty as those who are perpetrating. Alicia, the wrong against us. Let's hear from you, Alicia. Oh, this is uh, first of all, this is clearly a scholarly and passionate group. I'm uh, I'm I'm honored to be given a chance to talk to you, and I'm trying my best to to pull my weight here. Um, Look, I think that this concept that we have to challenge ourselves to do better is the right concept. You know, there's a story, and I don't know if there's an equivalent in, in other faiths, but there's a Jewish story of a, of a rabbi who really felt he had some great moral lessons to teach, and he tried to go teach them at the great synagogue on Yom Kippur, but nobody would listen. 
we said, okay, two, they were busy on Yom Kippur. Maybe I'll try doing it at a smaller day. Try doing it on a regular Shabbat. Still nobody listened. He said, you know what? The problem is I'm in the city. I'm going to go to the smaller shul on the village out in the country. Maybe they'll listen to me. And still everybody was talking. Nobody listened. He sat at his own family dinner table. He said, ah, my family at least will listen. And he tried to tell the moral lessons that he had to tell. And even his family was too busy. They interrupted him. They wouldn't listen. And he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just listen to these moral lessons, and I'm going to internalize them, and I'm just going to live by them. These lessons are going to be for me. And from the moment that he started doing that, everyone else started listening yeah. to him. So this <laughs> may all revolve on what we need to do with ourselves, how we conduct ourselves. Are we going to descend into the cesspool that is social media and throw that next punch and complain about the next person, cancel the next one we disagree with? Or are we going to find ways to talk to each other, regardless of whether we agree or disagree, mm -hmm. and through the way we act, bring people closer to us and open up the possibility for communication? Well put. I want to say this to mm -hmm. uh, all of you here. We're going to conclude at any moment. Uh, I was very. Now we're going to conclude. I, I got another question for uh, uh, Richard. What are, you, what are you doing? I'll give you. I'll give Am you. His, I'll give you his email. So uh, I, I have to tell you, I was very moved, Bishop Brown, by a phone call you made to me uh, as these attacks on Jews. What, by the way, when you see these attacks, it doesn't say kill the Israelis, kill the Jews, uh, right. and that that is that sends a very clear message. This goes beyond Israel. There's an anti-Semitism here that needs to be addressed. But you called and you said, we need to stand with you and for you. And I said, my God, to have someone of the Christian faith calling and saying, you know, that anti-Semitism is not just a Jewish issue. It's, it's something that we all have to combat. Uh, I found very reassuring. And uh, Alicia, your father, I think, would be very proud uh, of people. And I talk of Reverend Bernard and... Uh, Victor Brown, Bishop Brown, your father would be very proud because he saw this common humanity. He saw that we all, you know, come from one blood, so to speak. And he saw us having a moral responsibility to stand for one another and with one another when injustice is uh, perpetrated against any group. And I saw that. And I, uh, I was very, very, very uh, grateful to you for that. All right. Alicia Wiesel, Bishop Victor Brown. Thank you so much for being with us, and let's do it again, uh, because I think there's so much more to discuss, and I think people want to hear from both of you. Absolutely. Well, like I said, well, I have other questions here, Rabbi. Started. You mean we don't have another half an hour? <laughs> we have to extend the program. <laughs> See, Alicia, when you work with clergy, you know, the clock doesn't always work, you know, in our favor. We were about to solve Middle East peace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. But thank you, gentlemen, for being on the program. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Really yeah. an honor Real to be with you. Yeah. And you're listening to The Rev and the Rabbi right here on WABC. All right. We'll be back with more. Reverend A.R. Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi, 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Rabbi, I know you had to wrap that segment up, but I was, I was pumped. I was geared up for more. Yeah, well, when you have people like Victor Brown and Alicia Wiesel, uh, you want to take as much time as possible to... Uh, explore the issues that warrant uh, real, real examination. But I have to tell you, and, and I say this once again, 
the stories of goodness, the stories of people like Wiesel and Brown and all of the others who care so much about decency, those stories need to be told, especially to our young people, because they lose faith in leadership when they see leadership doesn't address um, you know, uh, the issue of the day and, and tries to feed them with some uh, platitudes of life. Uh, but here you have two people who are ready to probe the issues, to say sometimes what's not popular. Uh, but I think you said something uh, off air that, you know, people look back at the Trump era and they, you know, they, uh, some were complimentary, some condemned. But the, the issues of the day preceded Donald Trump. Yeah. And yeah. I think we have to recognize that. You know, it's very easy to point a finger uh, at one person and say, oh, he's responsible. He's not responsible. Uh you know, there there was there was hatred uh, that was there before he uh, came into power, and that's something, and that's something we need to talk about uh, because it's too easy an escape uh, to say it was him. And you know, and also I have to I have to say this very candidly: there are many people who will not give him credit for the many good things that he did. Um, you know, it, it's like if you don't like a person, you don't like any part of the person. Uh, but you, there's no nuance. And, but and isn't I, that the cancel culture, Rabbi? Yeah, yeah. Cancel culture just cancels you completely without considering the good that you did. I mean, the Abraham Peace Accord was so important. I mean, yeah. uh, a, a list of things that Trump did right, he got right, and it's unfortunate because that shows a that goes to show you shows the go you right goes to show you yeah. <laughs> how um, so much of your good can be undermined by weaknesses and deficiencies in character, you know, because that's essentially what it's been about. And I, 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 I said off air that I believe that it's not really uh, the country uh, reflecting, that Donald Trump reflects the country, but Trump reflects what has happened over time leading up to his presidency, and he exposed it. Yeah, you know he 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 brought all of it to the surface, but we can't hang it all on him. No, and you have to look at the entire record. I have to say, I heard politician after politician talking about we have to move the embassy to Jerusalem. It's the capital of the Jewish people. They all talked about it. He did it, and yeah. you know, and and yet I see many members uh, of the community, both my own and others as well, who don't acknowledge that heralded accomplishment. And I think. Yeah. That is not the right way to proceed. Give people, look at a report card. There are good grades, there are bad grades, but look at the entire card, not just look at one area and then, you know, eliminate everything else that was positive. So uh, I think that's a much more constructive way to, to look at life. Um, but I have to say, looking at these, these hate attacks uh, that we've seen proliferate, uh, here in New York, uh, in America, and around the world, it's always kill the Jews, get the Jews. Uh, it's not, you know, let's find a way to settle the Middle East conflict. It's let's attack. And uh, I was talking to a young man this past week who was wearing a yarmulke at a rally. He walked away from the rally. He got attacked by young people, and they bloodied his yarmulke. Uh, that's a sad commentary of where we are today when people are simply afraid of walking out there and showing their identity. You know, it's it's an expression of human nature without the necessary controls. You you and I uh, share what you we call the Old Testament, you call the Hebrew Scriptures. But in the book of Genesis, 
you know, it begins with a beautiful creation that God pronounces is, is good and very good, that he makes the hum, human beings. And, and, and by chapter 3, it begins to collapse. And by chapter 5, the earth is filled with violence. And those words are so powerful because it's true today. I, there's a lot of good happening in the world. But there is so much violence yeah. that is also present. By the way, you know the word for violence in the Bible? Hamas. Interesting, isn't it? Oh. Ooh. So Uh-oh. here you have that's, right? right? What that's is that? some serious stuff <laughs> that you just said. Right? What does it say <laughs> when you take the name Hamas that means violence? And by the way, you know what I find with people who hate? They don't hide the hatred. They're very clear. They're very clear as to what their... Per- Iran doesn't hide its wish to, you know, take Israel off the map. Hamas doesn't hide the fact that it wants to destroy the Jewish state. That's who they are, and it's very hard to negotiate with people, you know, who have that agenda. What do you negotiate? What time they're going to destroy you? You know, uh, it's it, you cannot you cannot have any kind of lasting peace. You can't have even a minimal peace with people who harbor that hatred. And I think once again. Palestinians need to look at the leadership as to where they have brought them and stop pointing a finger, you know, at Israel. Not that Israel is perfect. We don't say that. But I think if you look at the record of all of the uh, all of the offers that have been made, I think Palestinians have to say, why weren't any of those offers accepted, you know, adopted? Why didn't we compromise? Why are we still in this situation? Yeah. Yeah. And those who would accuse Israel... You know, you have to ask the question, what is the benefit to Israel to have war, to have conflict? They have done an amazing job of bringing life to a desert. Incredibly so, what has been constructed there. Why would they want to spend the time, effort, and money, and international challenges with public relations problems that they have as a result of all of this? Uh, it just doesn't make sense. Seventy plus years after the Holocaust, uh, I think we should be able to live in peace. You know, enough of the bloodshed, enough of the attacks, enough of the persecution, the pogroms. Uh, we pray for peace, but we need to see peace uh, in our in our world. And unfortunately, we're not there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll keep trying. We don't want to leave no, no, on, no, on a sour no. note. You know, our prophet Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Yeah, yeah. look. And there, we want to be peacemakers. I think you'll find there are those people who dream to fight, and the rest of us will continue to fight for a dream uh, of peace. Thank oh, you so I much. Like that, Rabbi. Right. That'll preach. I like that. <laughs> uh, Till next time, uh, of course, Memorial Day tomorrow. Be careful. Enjoy. Be blessed. Till next time. The Rev and the Rabbi.